Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to welcome the other half of Informed Performance to the show, uh, a show he's the co-founder of with myself, but he's been hiding in the Czech Republic, masking as a listener for a little while. But we finally got him on his own show and uh, it's really great to to welcome Mr. Ben Ashworth to, to his own show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Yeah, hiding away. Doing my best not to do the hosting up front, but uh, you've done a great job so far. Well, thank you. And um, I'm, I'm going to leave in a second because I've been fired. Uh, I haven't really, but Ben's going to be taking the reins today uh, for, and for some of the episodes that are coming up with some great guests, which is, uh, which is exciting. Do you want to tell everybody who you've got on? Yeah, so today, um, a long overdue conversation with David Opar, Dr. David Opar, who uh, I've built a relationship with over about the last eight years and since um, since initially trying to get some hamstring data at Arsenal and um, yeah the conversations progressed and the more the more problems we had to solve with hamstrings over the years the more I've I've bent his ear and and, and you know picked his brains on stuff which is fantastic so yeah it's really nice to get him on today cool well I'll um I'll sign off and I'll, I'll enjoy being on the receiving end of this this episode so um, yeah, over to you, mate. Uh, basically, if I do it badly, you'll be back on next week. So um, yeah, <laughs> if you leave if you leave a review afterwards, make sure it's make sure it says "Get Andy Hosting" for the rest of the pods. <laughs> no, I'm sure it'll be good. But uh, yeah, enjoy, mate. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Airbands, the world's first fully wireless, automated, and affordable BFR training cuffs. Equipped with intelligent calibration tools and controlled via the Airbands mobile app, the cuffs accurately inflate to your personalised pressure zone, safely restricting blood flow and increasing the limb's muscle response to weight stimulus. So with Airbands, there's no more cords, no more manual pumps, and no more guesswork. They are a safe and smarter option for BFR cuffs. For more information, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. It's a great pleasure to have David Opar on the show today. I've known David for about eight years now, and uh, so I'm delighted to have him here with us to talk about hamstrings and to dig into a few questions around that subject. Welcome to the show, mate. Hi, Benny. Thanks for having me, mate. Yeah, so it's a great pleasure. Um, I'm looking forward to diving into some some stuff around hamstrings, but first of all, um, for the listeners who don't perhaps know you as well as I do, um, can you just give us a bit of background about your journey to this point in time and just a bit of colour about you know how you got to where you got today. Yeah, mate, sure. So uh, look, my, my background's in, in sport and exercise science. Uh, so I did an undergrad degree in, in what was called human movement at the time at RMIT University in Melbourne. Um, so subsequent to that, then went up to Queensland University of Technology. Uh, Dr. Anthony Shield, or now Associate Professor Anthony Shield, uh, who taught me at RMIT but had moved up to, to Queensland for the, the better weather. Um, he was my, my PhD supervisor up there. And so with Tony, you know, I really got into a, a lot of hammy research um, and, you know, working alongside both he and, and then Morgan Williams in particular, uh, who's at the University of South Wales. Um, and we, I think we put together a decent body of work and then have sort of, I think that was probably 2010 we started and, uh, you know, finished up the PhD, ended 2012, uh, and then I moved back down to, to Melbourne uh, and, since 2013, I've been at the Australian Catholic University uh, down at their Melbourne campus uh, in our 
you know, essentially our school of exercise science has had a few different names along the journey. Uh, so then sort of continued on the, the Hamming line of research there uh, and sort of built up a team down here that sort of um, consists of uh, Ryan Timmons, Jack Hickey and Narav Maniar as our, our core members of our, our sort of injury research program down here. Uh, and then in, in recent times, along with uh, you know, the academic side of things, or should I say the research side of things in academia, then also recently uh, appointed as the, the director of a, a research centre here as well. So it's the Sprint Research Centre, so I've got to get the plug in nice and early. Uh, it's yeah, the Sports Performance, Recovery, Injury and New Technologies Research Centre. So I head that up uh, along with Associate Professor Stuart Cormack uh, and Associate Professor Shona Halson as well. So... Yeah, mate, that's, that's the sort of last uh, 10 years, I'd say, or maybe more, maybe the last 12 years in a nutshell. Fantastic. Thanks, mate. Um, so I want to crack straight into it. You know me. Um, and so I want to uh, cut straight to the chase. I think there's um, a number of things around hamstrings in terms of injury risk minimization and in terms of performance that practitioners will be looking at. And I want to sort of limit you straight away down to three key things that you'd measure with respect to injury risk minimization. And if we consider that in a sort of field-based sport context, um, I'm really interested in the answer because I don't know what you're going to say. So um, yeah, three things you'd measure for injury risk minimization. Yeah, I did warn you, Ben, before we started this, that I was going to push some stuff back onto you. And I know it's early in the UK, but can you tell me what you've got on the podium? What, what, what are the things that you think of that come to you? Because that'll help me frame a little bit of my answer, I think, as well, because you're pretty switched on and you've worked in <laughs> professional and elite sport for a long period of time. So uh, lead the witness a bit here, mate. What do, you, what, do you, what do you have on your top three? Okay, well, I mean, it's based on my own experience. Um, and and so we look at them. We, look, we use a Nord board. Um, so we look at hamstring force production for that and we, we look at that reasonably regularly throughout key time points through a season. So beginning of pre-season, end of pre-season are the key ones based on the research. And then we would try and look when we have an opportunity to measure um, hamstring force production using the Nord board in season. So that would be the, the first thing. I'd, I'd cheat a little bit by saying we look at force production and asymmetry. So those are two things. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you. And uh, we... We don't measure fascicle lengths in my current role, in my current job. We used to do that in my previous role. Um, so the other thing that I think we have to look at now is um, exposure to um, exposure to sprint running and, and looking at some form of acute chronic uh, workloads um, so that we make sure that our players are exposed to enough of a stimulus from that perspective as well to prepare them for sport. Cool. All right, you're off the hook, mate. Um, sorry, there, there's a couple of things I've got here. Um, so I made some notes as you were talking there, but I think there's a, a couple of things I want to try and weave into this discussion here as well. Um, we talk about risk minimisation. There's, there's probably then also a notion that if you measure something and we have determined previously that it's a risk factor, we're sort of making the assumption that that then also means that by improving that factor, we, we get a reduction in risk. Um, and I want to circle back to that later, but I think that's an important starting point. Um, the other things then around that that I want to sort of break this down into a little bit is 
So it's not only the what to measure, um, maybe then also considerations about if you are going to measure, how to measure, and, and then you've already touched a little bit on the frequency side of things as well. Uh, and we've got some work that, that isn't out at the moment uh, that's under review at the minute that I think can maybe be hopefully informative to a few people listening along uh, and, and, you know, maybe you know, a few little tidbits that are, that are not yet out there that you and your listeners maybe be able to, to benefit from as well. Um, but I'll give you the, the honest answer. I, I don't know whether anything that we measure uh, act actually helps. Uh, now, I have to maybe preface that by saying, and I'm sure you can have this in the notes of the podcast somewhere, but just to declare, you know, I, I was a co-inventor with, with Tony Shield on the, the Nord board, so we're both co-inventors on a patent application. Uh, and then the, the flow and effect of that is we're very small shareholders in, in Val Performance, which is the, the organisation or the company that, that sells that device as well. Um, so the reason why I say I'm not sure that anything we measure actually helps heaps, but maybe helps a little bit, but not a heap, is that when we start to do replication studies on some of these measures, so the Nord board stuff's a, a prime example, and we actually struggle to continually replicate the same findings. Maybe we're a little bit better on some of the architecture stuff. Um, and then if we look at measuring those factors with greater frequency, uh, that also doesn't necessarily improve our capacity to identify risk. So let me go through, to start off answering your question, what I think of the, the three crucial things. They might necessarily be the most helpful. And, and then so I want to try and then peel down into the next layer. So the obvious ones are stuff that you would already do anyway. You, you probably just didn't reel them off because they're not things that you can change. But how old are, are you? How old are they? And have they had a hammy before? Like that, that's, that's still the, the two big rocks that you need to understand. Now, maybe you might make the argument, well, even if I know how old they are, I can't change that. If you've had a history of injury, there's probably some things you might like to look at and try and address, uh, whether they're things related to strength or, or structure, uh, imbalances between leg, whatever it might be. So, I mean, they're two obvious ones, and I know that one's the sort of earth-shattering news there. Um, but then I think the the next layer of things beyond those, one of one of which you've you've touched on, so it's exposure to sprint running and the volume of sprint running. So, look, we don't have specifically for the hammies the absolute strongest, most um, clear evidence that. That is important, but it probably is, right? The the question that I think to follow on from that then is what are we calling high-speed running or sprint running? Uh, there's some really nice work from University of Wisconsin, Brian Heidershot, Daryl Thiel, and probably 10 years ago now that actually has a look at the, the exponential increase in, in negative work during swing uh, that the biceps femur is exposed to as you go from 80% high-speed running to 85, 90, 95, and then up to 100 so, so I'll, I'll say I agree with you. The exposure to sprint running is important, but then the, the next level of consideration needs to be what, what do you define as, as high-speed running or sprint running? Now, you might call your sprint running that they have to get within or they have to hit 100% of what your, your predetermined max might be. Uh, others might look at above 80% of that. Others might use an absolute threshold. I'd encourage people to have a look at that real upper end. So if you're talking about... 90, but probably 95%. Uh, and, yeah, there's so many different ways you could determine their maximal level of, of their max velocity and how you're going to assess that. 
Um, and, and again, we could, we could go on that for too long. So we won't get deep, drill deep down into that detail. But I'd be encouraging people to look at, you know, the upwards of the 90s and the 95s uh, because there's a, a significant increase in the work that biceps fem has to do during the terminal swing phase of running um, that happens when you're at those top end speeds that doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily happen or pick up or get the stimulus at uh, 80 or 85%. So you referred to not measuring architecture uh, and then measuring eccentric strength or nordic strength. So for me, what's probably more important for interrelated to those two is actually then an appreciation for how regularly you expose people to an eccentric strength training stimulus. What we've seen with some of our, our strength work, this is a combination of the data we collect in the field and also some of the lab-based research that we do, is that a measure of eccentric strength can actually be modulated and increased through a number of different stimuli. So if we take a really clean, simple example, expose people to concentric or eccentric only knee flexor exercise, they actually both get an increase in, in eccentric strength when we measure them at you know, the end of six weeks or so. Uh, we know, though, in that scenario, the next layer down is the architectural adaptations are very different. Um, so the concentric-only training will tend to lead to a shortening of, of biceps femoris fascicles, uh, and the eccentric stimulus will tend to lead to an increase. We probably think that having longer biceps fem fascicles, and for those who don't know, this is, you know it's a, an architectural measure. Uh, we take it with two-dimensional ultrasound, but there's a couple of different ways you can do it. Um, and, and, yeah. Longer fascicles implies longer fibres, more sarcomeres in series. Um, so the other thing we know about uh, the strength response and the, the structural responses is that um, strength is also maintained far more easily than positive architectural adaptations. So that is uh, the, the length or the increase in length of, of fascicles doesn't persist as long when you remove a stimulus where a strength can be maintained. And that detraining effect of the architectural characteristics actually can happen quite quickly. So within seven to 14 days, even potentially, if you sort of go cold turkey and remove a stimulus. Um, and you know, some of the consultancy work that we do um, with individuals and with clubs, like sometimes the removal of an eccentric strength training stimulus is just happens because it has to, whether it's for the squad or for at an individual level because of scheduling um, issues, congestion, Things happen in the program, niggles uh, with an individual, those sort of things. So the thing that I would keep track on it, and you can call it measure if you want, but how regularly you're exposing your individuals to any centric strength training stimulus, partly that can help to dictate the architectural adaptations and maybe the strength adaptations, even if you don't need to measure it. So I think the more regularly you expose people to high intensity, and let's say fairly regularly a super maximal strength training stimulus that's got eccentric overload, the more likely you are to drive or maintain some of those positive structural and, and then the byproduct of those strength, strengthening adaptations as well. Um, so so that would be my, my go-to. Now, I know it's probably a long-winded response, but I think there's some nuance there that sort of gets lost in, in the watch and some of the, the Twitter wars that, that go on in this stuff. But age and, and history of injury, absolutely. Um, and then how often are they be exposed to, to high-speed running, but then being really cautious about what you actually define high-speed running is. And then count, count frequency, how often you're exposing uh, your individual athletes or your squad 
to high-intensity, let's say supramaximal eccentric strength training stimuli. So the other point I wanted to pick up there that I just alluded to is we also make this assumption that uh, when, we, when we can measure something and it's been identified as a risk factor, that we then improve that risk factor. So, for example, someone's weak or someone's got short fascicles. We assume that we input interventions that cause positive adaptations to offset those, and that reduces risk. And we've got some work at the moment where we've, we've done risk factor assessments and compared just a measure at the start of pre-season to a start of pre-season measure end of pre-season measure and an in-season measure. Two things we find out of that. <clears throat> the greater frequency of testing didn't actually improve our ability to predict who goes on to get a hamstring strain injury. And there's some stuff to unpack there if you want to get into it. Um, but then the other thing we looked at was whether change in pre-season scores, so strength and architecture as examples, whether that was actually associated with being able to identify who was at greater risk of injury and who wasn't. And the change in pre-season actually told us nothing uh, extra or better or enabled us to predict risk better. So I think I, I really enjoy doing risk factor studies. I think they're a really important part of the work that we do, but also trying to inform people about how they might be able to improve their practices or consider about things to measure. But that we don't have then the next step of, identify factor, improve that factor, does that then influence your risk? And I think that's a, an important hole we've still got to try and cover off as well. Okay, very very uh, comprehensive answer there. And, and, and as you say, you've touched on a number of things. Uh, I want to just pick up on the for people who don't have perhaps the ability to measure architectural or even changes in force production, um, you know, in their own environments with regard to a very simple formula of minimum optimal dose in terms of a supramaximal eccentric stimulus for the hamstrings what are we talking there you said the changes are around you know we can sort of detrain almost seven to ten days so what are we talking in terms of the dose that people should be looking at for some sort of hamstring exercise eccentrically. Yeah, so we've got a we've got a study that's it's under review at the moment. We did it uh, in collaboration with the guys out of Aspatar, so uh, Fergal B and uh, and Rod Whiteley out there. So we've we've done some preliminary sort of dose response work, if you will, uh, a couple of years ago. We, we've sort of done a further dive on that recently with those guys. Yeah, look, if we if we use uh, um, like a, a measure of Nordic strength as, a, as an outcome variable and then a, a measure of bicep serum architecture as an outcome variable. And again, improving those doesn't necessarily mean it's going to improve your risk, but that's probably the best we've got to go off at the moment. Um, our early work suggested that you could probably get away with a single exposure uh, to the Nordic uh, once per week at relatively low volume, so say a, a two by four or something like that. <laughs> We've extended that. Now, the, the other probably caveat to that is that with that approach, so a single exposure uh, once per week of about eight reps works probably really well if the intensity of those reps is, is super maximal. So think about doing the Nordic. People are not able to control it all the way through range. Um, and it also probably works relatively well when you have a, a much higher 
or a high volume period for a couple of weeks, not necessarily to kickstart things, but I think that's where you sort of be able to drive some decent adaptations. And so in that early work, that's a study by Joel Presland, if anyone's interested. And again, we can provide the details to that to people sort of offline, Benny. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I think we did. I think we did two sessions per week, <coughs> and I think it was four by six per session. But again, making sure it was super maximal. So I think that gives you some some parameters. We, we've drilled that down a little bit further to say what happens if you get rid of that higher volume two week block at the start. Uh, and so that work with Fergal and Rod. Uh, and Ryan's obviously involved closely with that as well, Ryan Timmons. Um, what we found is that if you just go low volume from the get-go, the rate of improvement that you get early days is actually uh, reduced a little bit. So there is still a volume component there to probably being able to get some adaptation quite quickly. Uh, and the other thing is we looked at just low volume and only doing it once every second week. So essentially a single exposure one week, nothing the next week, and then a, another single exposure the week later you get this effect where you sort of you don't improve uh, really much your, your architectural characteristics. There might be some minor benefit from a strength perspective. So I think that gives some some parameters and some guidance. It's not perfect, uh, but I think it gets you in the right direction. Probably needs to be at least once a week. Uh, you can get away with that at low volumes if intensity's high enough, but it's also probably being mindful that you can't just always be slogging guys with super maximal intensity stuff week on week, year on year. So there is probably some ability to fluctuate then the level of intensity as well, probably just trying to make sure that you get it in, um, get a weekly exposure in, and you can probably play around a little bit with the intensity side of things if you needed to, um, as opposed to, say, so missing a session altogether uh, when things get a bit hectic. Okay, and it's a similar sort of question, again, for people looking at this this idea of exposing to sprint you know so 90 to 95 percent is something actually we use um to get up and hit those higher speeds but again how often or how regularly and is there an optimal dose of sprinting that you would you would propose as being um useful or relatively useful for potentially you know mitigating against any sort of hamstring problem Short answer is no, uh, and I know that's not helpful. So uh, let, me tr- let me try and sort of flesh that out a little. <clears throat> I think the, we don't have anything hammy specific, and hopefully there's some work going on uh, in various corners of the globe to to provide a little bit of um, a, a little bit more information to try and guide practice. Um, the the evidence that I probably keep coming back to is not hammy specific, but there's a paper by Shane Malone that looks at the count. Uh, weekly count of uh, or exposures to max velocity running and then the the likelihood of subsequent, I think it's lower limb soft tissue injury. I could be wrong. Um, but th- there's a really nice U-shaped relationship. I think the, the bottom of that um, U-shaped relationship, so likelihood of injury is lowest, where uh, the, the weekly exposures were probably around the six to eight mark. Um, but again, you sort of, in, in the same sort of area when you're a little bit lower than that, a little bit higher than that as well in terms of future injury risk. That's probably the best guidance I can give at the moment at, on a broad sense. Uh, but as you well know, Ben, yeah, that's going to probably vary a little bit from individual to individual. There's other factors you probably need to consider then uh, in terms of, um, you know, whether it's the acute and the chronic workloads, maybe not necessarily the acute chronic workload ratio, but considering what their acute and chronic workloads are, 
uh, in those high-speed running demands because uh, there's going to be some modulation in, in what you go through and do there. Uh, but I think if you're looking at the count or the frequency of things, you're probably looking at something in that maybe four to ten range on a weekly basis. Uh, but there's probably some some sensible ways to get there or some sen- sensible ways to play within that that threshold or that tolerance uh, week on week. And the other thing that we've probably seen in our HAMI-specific load monitoring work, so there's a, a nice paper from one of Tony's Tony Shields' PhD students, Steve Dewey, from a little while ago, and then one of my honours students here, uh, Joshua Ruddy, um, that the week-to-week change uh, in exposures is probably one of the more, and, and when I talk about exposures, I'm, I'm talking not about counts but about uh, distance above certain velocity bands, um, and again, this study wasn't perfect, but what we found was that it was the week-to-week change data that was most useful uh, in terms of identifying when you might have undercooked them or overcooked them. Um, and from memory, we're sort of talking about 10 or 15% changes um, starting to maybe tip you into a period where your risk starts to increase. Now, that's not always a bad thing because you sort of need to have some increase in risk if you're exposing people to greater stimulus over time. But that, that's probably one other thing just to keep in mind when when planning maybe some of the high-speed exposures and monitoring those as well, some of the, the week-to-week changes, perhaps against, you know, a four-to-one chronic and acute window or something like that. Yeah, and I think coming back to the this kind of exposure or more regular frequent exposure um, to drive those adaptations, one issue I suppose we have in, in uh, field-based sports, and particularly now at the moment with this fixture congestion and these kind of dense periods of match play is when to put in a strength stimulus or when to put in um, for players who perhaps aren't playing on a regular basis in the squad is when to put in those those exposures either to sprint or or to uh, to a high intensity stimulus from an eccentric overload perspective um, so I'm quite interested about the the, the best practices you've seen around the timing of intervention, particularly for using, as an example, a, a Nordic hamstring exercise in a week where perhaps you play two games in seven days. Yeah. So I think the, there's no perfect solution here. So it's maybe just about considering what are the pros and cons of, of, of each or either. So even if we break it down a little bit, uh, more granular and say, you know, do you do it before or after a, a field session? Um, I mean, that's a, probably a question we don't necessarily have a perfect answer to. There's some uh, some recent work out that suggests that uh, the preventative benefits um, are there. I think it's pre, um, I could be wrong here, but I, ha- I have a feeling it's, you know, by doing it pre a field training session, there's preventative benefits associated with that. Um, there, there's the consideration around how strong the stimulus will be to drive your architectural and or strength adaptations. So even at a, at a simple level, if you do a exposure to a Nordic, that requires you to have a pretty good shift and there is an element of how motivated somebody is and also how fatigued they are to do it. Uh, if you do it after an exhaustive session, potential that you don't get people being able to get through as much of the range of motion as possible the Nordic's already limited because it's a short or moderate length exercise. Therefore, doing it when people are cooked after a field-based session might mean that 
their ability to do the exercise well, get the bang for your buck for that stimulus, maybe is limited. Alternative approach to that is do it before your field training session. I think the fear that people have is that you induce some fatigue or some damage that then leads to an elevated risk when they are out on the field and might be exposed to high-speed running. I don't necessarily subscribe to the fact that you're going to be at greater risk uh, if you do an eccentric exposure, let's say an hour or two, before a field-based session. But the reality of it is that if you know, someone goes ahead and pulls the trigger and someone gets injured you know, within the first couple of weeks of implementing that practice and that strategy, that you know, someone's in the gun for that and that, that's going to be looked at as probably a causative factor. I, I don't think that it would be the case, but I think you can't get away from that reality. In terms of when to do it, uh, let's say, on a week-to-week basis, again, I, mean, I think we, you know, it's been pretty well publicised. So, for example, I think the Leicester City guys you know, had some of the guys who, who maybe were subs or, or didn't play, so on the subs bench but didn't play at all, uh, doing some of those eccentric exposures um, immediately after matches. Uh, and, and I have a feeling that that was at least uh, in vogue for them when they were probably more on a, a seven-day cycle. Uh, and, you know, I haven't spoken with those guys in a while. Things may have changed uh, in that setup. So I think that's an, an option. I mean, there's also examples uh, around the world, not necessarily in soccer, uh, but but in a few other codes where even squad-wide after a game, they might actually get people to do, uh, you know, an exposure to an eccentric strength training stimulus immediately after a match. Again, you might have that uh, that argument that the stimulus is not going to be as strong and the benefit's not going to be as strong, but... I don't think we know the answer yet as to, to how much it is diminished and whether it actually matters all that much or whether getting that stimulus is going to be important. The other reality is is that you might have periods of time where, where you do miss it, uh, and there's an element of there's an element of developing a culture within a club, uh, and maybe being able to get the work in to an eccentric strength training stimulus early days in preseason, the first couple of weeks when they're back to actually mitigate any effects that you might get. Of soreness that are associated with that exposure, and I think there's a lot of organisations that have, and Benny, you're probably an example of this, committed to that notion that you need to get that stimulus in, and it's critically important for your overall program. As a result of that, we're going to make sure it gets in. It gets in well early. People understand why we're doing it, and if you get that buy-in early, then all of a sudden, getting it in in some of those congested times, or in those periods of congestion, probably becomes a little bit easier. I'm keen to hear your experience, though, on that, mate, because I know you've gone, uh, yeah, you, you, you're not um, trying to solve this and attack this problem with just one approach. Uh, and I know you tackle it a number of different ways, but what's your view on it? Yeah, I was just going to add that we, through the period sort of post-lockdown, where we had the opportunity to build up this capacity in terms of Nordics and repeated work and high-speed running exposure without football, um, we went into a situation where players were used to doing Nordics. And so post-matches sometimes we would create an optional um, ability to perform, you know, something like two times three reps. And that's all we'd ask for them. Um, If they hadn't played or if they, you know, come on as a sub after 60 minutes, as an example, then again, we do a full program or something around two fours, two fives. Um, just to keep that kind of maintenance dose in there, specifically around trying to play every three days, which is that you know impossible window. There's never a good time to do it. And so that's yeah, that's basically what we did. But it comes back to the sort of preparedness of the player to to do it. You know, and and we've had 
in in my experience, we've had some players who are willing but not able. So they they come to do their two times three after a game, and and they start to cramp up. And of course, we yeah we stop it right there. And that's an example of where that stimulus for that individual is just not going to be beneficial. And I think that's there's going to be a spectrum of that with every player. So we're very sensible. We hope um, around that, and it seemed to be working pretty well. But there's also a number of other factors, of course, involved in 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 why that might have helped us with our with our hamstring injury record. Yeah, and I think the other thing, just to pick up upon that, is I actually don't know whether a well-monitored, well-structured exposures just to high-speed running might be might be sufficient in and of itself. You, know, you come back to the argument of, of what's necessary and what's sufficient. It may very well be that just exposing people to high-speed running and making sure that they're hitting some of those really higher bands is enough, like that, that is sufficient. I'd make the argument that it's certainly necessary um, and, and maybe neither of, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the I feel like sometimes there's warring parties between an exposure to a strength training exercise and exposure to running or running technique. Um, but I, I don't think we can discount that fact yet just because we don't have the information at hand. Uh, I know that... Um, Phil Glasgow has mentioned to me a couple of times that Phil's involved with the, the IRFU uh, and they've done a lot of work around, um, you know, profiling their guys from an eccentric strength perspective uh, that you know, there's, there's some groups who don't do any um, targeted hamstring loading um, and it's indistinguishable in terms of the, the changes or the in, increase in eccentric strength that they get compared to a group that does have a focus on that and, and the group who's not doing the strength training has a much heavier emphasis on their, the, the high-speed running exposures. So, yeah, it's – without the information, you sort of think, God, how are we going to cover all bases here? Um, and so I think there's probably a well, well-established well sort of view on that. But, yeah, it's it's probably just one that sort of percolates in the mind a little bit. Is that there's I think there's typically more than one way to skin a cat uh, when it comes to hammies. Um, it's just that we have better furnished evidence in some areas than we do others. Yeah, and I think um, we had uh, we had James Moore on on the show on the podcast, um, giving his opinions uh, around you know Nordic hamstring exercises and their their relative use as part of a a whole picture of all the things that you can do around um, around you know performance of hamstrings as a, as a as a key direction and you know he he talked about speed of contraction and he talked about isokinetics and these contraction speeds of 300 degrees per second or maybe a nordic which might happen at somewhere around 15 to 20 degrees per second you know that transference into the the sporting action of sprinting you know maybe we do need both things i mean what's what's your thoughts on the relevance of nordic hamstrings and why that might why that might help uh, because it's yeah. a slow speed exercise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's the easiest sort of cop out statement when you're talking about hammies just to say it's multifactorial, but yeah, they're, they're multifactorial. Some of the factors we don't know about uh, and some of them we've, we've got a bit of a clue on. Right. So I think, um, yeah. And, and James's view, which I, I tend to agree with, you know, is there's a lot of things that go in here. Uh, and for anyone who's, who's heard James speak, you know, 
uh, his brain just works on another level to I think the, the regular folk like me and you, Benny. Um, but, <laughs> Correct. Yeah. But, so so I agree. Yeah. The, the overarching premise is there's, there's not one solution and one size that fits all here. Uh, and so there's a number of things you've got to consider. And as I say, it, it, there's just so much grey here in terms of the nuance you've got to consider. And you know, we really drill deep down into it. I'm sort of lucky that I get to do it for a job and appreciate that it's not. Not everyone's got the time to do that. When you drill down into the nuance of it, there's so many things you've got to consider and weigh up against one another. And um, yeah, the end result is yeah, someone gets injured or they don't. But there's so many different ways you can get to either of those outcomes. I think. So why has the Nordic got some value, even if we're talking about a slow speed movement in an action that typically happens during high speed running? Um, I could still remember uh, Tony Shield. Uh, giving us a lecture, yeah, if anyone ever gets the chance and wants to go on and do some continued education, I mean, I'm pretty sure Tony still delivers a resistance training unit at, at, at QUT. He taught it to me at RMIT, but uh, it's one of the most outstanding uh, learning experiences I've ever had. So that's a bit of a plug for anyone who wants to go and, and do a course at QUT uh, or a one-offer. Uh, but, yeah, Tony would talk about you know, all the variables to consider in terms of just resistance training in general um, and elements around um, specificity and the like, and, and Tony's got you know, a big interest in track and field. And so he'd often use the example of, of shot putters, um, sh- you know, shot putters who you have know, just a huge pec major and anterior deltoid um, don't get that just from throwing slightly heavier shot puts than what, that, what they throw in competition. So, you know, they, they, they bench press, they bench press a lot and they bench press heavy. Um, but there's sort of an analogy there, and, and Tony would sort of say, you know, you build the engine in the gym, and then out, out on the out on the park or around the track, you want to use it. Um, it's sort of synonymous here a little bit with, with Nordics and the Hammings. I think what it is is it's an exercise that drives structural adaptation primarily. I mean, you're going to get some of the downstream effects of that uh, in terms of it being as, ex- expressed as, as greater levels of strength. But the Nordic, I would view it primarily as something that helps to alter your structure. Again, I, I think the it's okay to articulate this argument, although we don't have every piece together perfectly, but it'll help increase biceps and fascicle length. And we presume that that helps to offset injury risk. That's, we don't have data to confirm that, right, but we assume that. The other thing that um, increasing fibre or fascicle length will do uh, is we know from some of the, the really early work from, from Lieber and Frieden, um, who've got some amazing architectural papers just broadly, not necessarily on hammies, uh, is that it also will then influence force velocity profiles of muscle. And so by increasing fibre or fascicle length, you're then also likely to increase things like your your muscle's maximal shortening velocity or your theoretical Vmax. And so that structural adaptation has a direct link, I think, then to helping to articulate where some of the benefits might be. So even though the exercise is, is slow speed, the structural changes that it that it engenders then actually has probably some impact at, at a functional level. So I think that's probably that's probably one element. I think there's potentially a, a host of other elements in terms of you know the rate of adaptation we might get in muscle compared to tendon, as an example, or, or tendon and aponeurosis adaptations uh, that we don't yes, yet know a heap about. But there's probably some work we'll embark on in the next little while as well. But Think of a Nordic as that that structural exercise that helps to build the engine. You've got to go out and, and learn to use the engine uh, to steal Tony's sort of verbiage or phrasing. 
Um, but by building the engine, you are also allowing it to shorten at a, at a greater maximal velocity. You know, it is able to sort of rev a bit harder for you as well. So you know, I, I think that's a, a reasonable argument as to its value. Okay, so, you know, we've talked about some of the potential for potentially minimising risk in, in, in terms of a hamstring injury, but hamstring injuries do happen. You know, there's still every uh, every conversation I hear is, uh, references the fact that in spite of all these uh, in spite of all these interventions uh, that hamstring injuries don't don't seem to be on the uh, on the mend um so people do get injured they do get hamstring injuries and and I've heard you speak before about a more aggressive approach to hamstring rehabilitation so for the listeners can you just clarify what that means to you and 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 how that might impact on the overall return to performance process yeah, sure. Let me pick up on on, on a, a point you alluded to there as well, though. And we sort of talk about the fact that, you know, that, let's say the rate of hamstring injuries is not in decline or, or increasing over time. And I think that can be sometimes be viewed or perceived as a failure of, uh, let's say, the research community, those working in the applied environment, whatever it might be, you know, implementation science, all that sort of stuff. But the, the opposing view, which I've, I've heard a few other people express, I, I think, is is – is well rationalised, is that probably actually with the development and advancement in our understanding uh, and, and how people are doing things, we're probably keeping pace with increasing demands across sports generally. I think you can go and dig up articles there in the Premier League, in Australian football here, uh, about how the demands on these athletes, you know, whether it's uh, exposure to, to high-intensity uh, running, you know, metres per minute, those sort of things, like that's just... It's going up and up and up and up and up. And I don't, I actually don't think, and this is just sort of subjective and a bit field based, I don't think the rates of injury have gone up as much as you might have expected based on the, the exposures that, that people are, are getting uh, these days. But anyway, that's, that's besides the point of your question. So we've done a little bit of hammy rehab work. We hope to do a little bit more. Um, so Jack Hickey, who, who did his PhD, wrapped his PhD um, up with us. A couple of years ago now, and is now sort of on staff here and part of the team. Um, Jack's Jack's got a, a clinical background. Um, he's he's what's called a, a clinical or accredited exercise physiologist, uh, which is not the, the greatest term for them, um, but they're an allied health profession here in Australia. Um, you know, like a physiotherapist, uh, an OT, or the like. But the um, clinical exercise physiologist tends to use exercise. Um, to, to treat a whole range of conditions, one of which is, is uh, musculoskeletal conditions. Uh, so Jack came to us with that clinical background. Uh, we know Jack for a while. Uh, I think I might have taught him in his undergrad way back when. Um, and so Jack came to us and we were really keen to try and get a, a line of research looking at rehab. Um, and a couple of the areas we wanted to try and look at with his work, if we could, was um, how, how early can you actually start to introduce, let's say, more aggressive uh, loading? And I appreciate that that's probably a vague term without giving it a little bit further definition. But when can we start to load people up aggressively and eccentrically in rehab? When, when can we do that? And then also Jack, some of Jack's work also focused on whether people needed to be completely pain-free um, before they progressed through um, rehabilitation or whether, in fact, uh, they can have tolerate some degree of pain and then still be okay. So in term and Part of all that structure, Jack sort of came up with the idea of, well, instead of having, you know, people went through the phase of time-based progression to criteria-based progression, um, 
And, and Jack looked at obviously the time-based progression's got some limitations clearly, particularly for hammy injuries. The criteria-based progression um, on the surface sounds to sort of make sense, uh, but a lot of the literature that's out there, you do really non-specific criteria um, to progress into a next phase. So, uh, you know, for example, you know, pain-free single leg squats or something like that, or pain-free um, cycle ergo you know, at a certain wattage. But they weren't any of the things that people were actually getting exposed to in those phases of rehab. So Jack's view was a, a pretty simple one. Um, you know, if we're going to ask people to do super maximally centric exercise that's bilateral in nature, then we probably need to start looking at uh, an easier version of that, see how they tolerate that, and then and then move them along. Um, so, and we'll, we'll, we'll use the Nordic as an example, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Um, using that approach, Jack sort of came up with a, a bilateral slider. Um, so, you know, you could imagine you know, bridging up, you know, almost with a valve slide sort of set up or something like that, but then just bridging up, hips up off the ground. Um, you, know, you can have your, your feet on a couple of socks or sliders or whatever, and then just you know, slowly extending your knees out, controlling that. We did it slightly differently in the lab just so we can measure forces in left and right legs, but that's, that's, the, that's the guts of it. So if people were actually able to tolerate that task and that exercise within whatever pain limits we set for them, because we had a couple of different groups, they were then progressed on within that session to a unilateral um, slider and then to the, the Nordic hamstring exercise. Um, so using that approach, we actually had some people uh, across a spectrum of severity of injuries, you know, some who we didn't image them at the time but later found out that they had sort of proximal tendon involvement uh, all the way through to probably your really low-grade hammy strains. Uh, but people as, as early as one, two or three days post-hammy injury actually able to tolerate that bilateral slider exercise and amazingly were able to then really well tolerate at that same time um, a, a bodyweight Nordic. Um, the, the interesting thing from our perspective as well was that at that same time point, they're actually often still finding uh, an isometric contraction, either at 0, zero or 90, 90 quite provocative for the, for the hammies and, and provoking pain. But And I, I can't explain it. I don't know the mechanism. I, I, I still can't put the pieces together in my mind. Uh, but it's what we observed, they would not often, if ever, report the same level of pain and often much lower during those eccentric contractions. I don't know whether it's an order effect or whether because we did the isometrics as part of their clinical exam first up and then you know, they've gone through a number of exercises then getting to their eccentric work, maybe that had an effect. But that, that, that to me was sort of, it's still sort of astounding to this point in time. Um, so... We're of the view that you don't necessarily need to delay some more aggressive exposures until time passes necessarily or till criteria are met necessarily. <coughs> That's nondescript criteria. But you actually look for logical progressions and regressions of specific exercises, expose people to them in a common sense way. I mean, not doing anything stupid here. Uh, seeing how they tolerate them and then progress or regress based on their response. And I think... From our approach, it will sort of become our standard rehab practice that we implement in a number of studies moving forward. We think you can probably get stuff in earlier uh, than what otherwise people think is is feasible or they might be comfortable with. Yeah, in very interesting and, and personal to me that because um, my non-modifiable risk factor was age and I decided to um, 
to smash my acute chronic workloads because I hadn't played rugby sevens for about 10 years, went back, picked a ball off my toes and had a grade two hamstring injury. And because we had a Nord board at work, I got on it the next day. So in terms of in terms of being one of the pioneers or first people to jump on a Nord board day one after a hamstring injury, um, the other tolerance factor, which I found was this symmetry. So I was able to do a, a Nordic hammy on the Nord board, but there was a large asymmetry with regard to my own personal personal injury. Um, what, what's the what's the feeling on that from your perspective? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things here, um, and, and I don't have the data at hand on top of why, but I actually think that we saw that um, you know across probably 45 of these examples when people first started doing Nordics and we were measuring Nordics in that study. When they were first doing Nordics, we also had their isometric data for the same day. From memory, I think the deficits in isometric strength on average were greater than the than the Nordic um, data. Now, there's there's a couple of things to consider there though as well. One of the reasons why we think actually the Nordic is probably nice to introduce a little bit earlier is that you've actually got for an individual, and this could be your experience, uh, Ben, as well. For an individual, they can actually choose to ride the good leg if they're not quite sure as well. Now, we collect the data, right, so you can sort of see that and chat to them about it and sort of tie together what you see on the screen with, with what they're feeling and, and, and how comfortable or confident they are. But people do have the ability to, to ride the good leg and, and also to essentially abort the exercise if something doesn't feel quite right at any stage. So oh, there's, a, there's a possibility there that, for your example, how do we have gone through the process of let's build you up through a few tasks that are similar to see whether that might actually influence how comfortable and confident you are with doing something like the Nordic down the line, that that, that may actually have an influence there. Uh, but, again, not, not every one of these injuries is the same, right? So you're going to have a pretty big spread of um, how early after a hammy, how severe that hammy is, the mechanism, a whole host of things that are probably going to influence that relationship as well. But, yeah, I, 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 it would probably don't have the data on yourself, right? But it would be interesting to see then the tolerance for, you know, a 9090 ISO test as an example. I don't know, you might have done that on Forstex uh, at the time. But um yeah, and the, the discrepancy you have there, because I think our experience is it's it's tended to be greater during the ISOs uh, than during the eccentric side of things as well. Even though the ISOs we do unilaterally um and and the Nordics obviously bilateral and, and as I say you can sort of ride the good leg instead of the bad leg. But yeah, so that, that's been our experience, mate. But I, I, that's that's forty odd participants, which sounds like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, doesn't cover many of your bases as it comes to hammies. Yeah, well, it it sort of is better than my n equals one case study, I'm sure. But uh, I, I actually think of it a little bit like this kind of two two avoidance strategies. One is one is that you ride the you know the the unaffected side for sure, and that's what I did. But there's also this strategy of just not pushing hard enough so mm-hmm. you know we we even see it on testing um people can maintain symmetry if they don't yeah produce high forces so the coaching element of that is really important to getting good data um and, and and i've come across this in a number of people you know yeah he's he's weak and symmetrical okay well let's see if he can be strong and asymmetrical you know? yeah. yeah, and uh, we've, uh, you know, I remember a few players that I've come across over the years who've had exactly that, and suddenly out of nowhere they produce a result which is way higher, but creates a huge 
yeah. asymmetry. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that's it's probably something that Bears mentioned from some of the stuff I mentioned earlier. When we talk about making sure that the Nordic is super maximal, often for a lot of people after they get accustomed to that exposure, that actually requires them to hold additional weight. Uh, and so you're right. Um, you actually you won't reveal some deficits if you actually don't get people pretty close to failure. Now, ideal scenario, you want to get them failing as close to the end of range as possible, but you do want to sort of get them to the point where they fail because if they're if they're not, yeah, if, if it's designed to be a, a maximal or, or super maximal strength test, but but they're not actually having to exert maximally, then you, you sort of miss the trick. You know, it's it's sort of like trying to do a, a squat one RM. Uh, and and just sort of loading people up to to yeah seventy percent of an RM and then saying well yeah if we if we did some asymmetry work let's say for an ACL pop as an example yeah, yeah that that doesn't paint the full picture for you um, so yeah no that's a really good point mate yeah, I, I agree with that uh, wholeheartedly loading them up obviously in rehab might be a little bit trickier but for looking at some regular assessments or even some assessments where you might be trying to get some picture about risk making sure that you actually get a maximal effort, maximal effort and they're actually exposed to a stimulus that requires them to exert themselves maximally. Well, I think that's pretty important. Yeah, and that's good of you to clarify. You know, we're having a discussion here about some hypothetical cases and particularly around that kind of healing post-injury. You know, we don't want to be taking any undue risks and, uh, you know, we are concerned about how that's going to impact on recurrences down the line you know if there's if we've got 45 cases to look at that you know how sure can we be that that more uh, I, don't, I don't like the word aggressive personally but I, I used it just to kick off the conversation but if we're going to use that step-by-step progression is that is that going to have any negative effect longer term on this athlete's rehabilitation in terms of that tissue healing and potential scarring and uh, yeah. and the impact on the muscle function as a whole yeah yeah and short answer is don't know the the thing we saw with with jack's work um very uh, very i say very few re-injuries but that's partly just due to a sample size right if you want to get good sort of re-injury numbers you have a much bigger study than what we had um so it's not to say that our rehab was amazing and therefore that's why the re-injury rates were low uh, but when we looked at the i think the might be the four re-injuries that we had um, three of those four were people who returned to play uh, 14 days or less. Um, so, yeah, it's it's there's still a component of time there, uh, and, and I think there's there's a, the basic science about around muscle healing and muscle repair that you just can't get your way around. Uh, and so maybe the ultimate goal is. For a set period of time, let's just say, you know, coach is breathing down your neck, Ben, and, and yeah, there's a big game coming up, so someone's got to be back. And that's sort of, I'm sorry, that's just what we're doing. Uh, yeah, in that situation, maybe it gives you a few more options to be able to feel comfortable or confident to be able to get some load in someone a little quicker. So you might be able to drive some adaptation in a set period of time a little better. Whether that ultimately minimizes their re injury risk in certain circumstances, who knows? Um, but, yeah, there, there, there's an element of time that we just can't get around. And so even though we talk about an, an accelerated approach to the introduction of loading, maybe that's a better way than saying aggressive, um, even though we've got that, there, there's still some of those underlying properties 
tissue repair uh, that that we you have to respect. As again, and this is all just sort of it's probably just giving people a few extra tools to to consider about how they might be able to get some load in or accelerate their loading strategy. Yeah, I think you know the the idea of stepwise progression is is this kind of gated progression of do one thing to then allow you to 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 move on to the next phase. You know, this phased rehabilitation process is something that I certainly adhere to rather than a time based prescription. Um, thinking then about you know you, you you've been to a lot of places you've seen under the, the hood of a lot of good high performing organisations is. Thinking about any other specific criteria that you've seen used well in terms of monitoring that return to performance process. Yeah, I mean, they, they probably tend to. Now, the first thing to say on that front is that the, the evidence base is so poor in this space. Now, I think there's one study from from the Dutch group. Um, I think DeVos might be the lead order, but lead author, but Hans Tolls on that paper and probably Husserl Rick as well. Uh, one paper that's got some decent re-injury data to have a look at factors associated with re-injury risk, uh, and what they found was that return to play was sort of deficits on a a, a moderate length uh, isometric test, uh, and I think an active knee extension was sort of indicative of of re-injury risk. So I think that, and to be fair, that's probably the the bulk of the evidence uh, that's out there. Uh, there's also obviously uh, Carl Askling's work. Using the um, uh, the oh, is it the H test? Yeah, the H test. Yeah, that's it. The H um, test. Yeah, the H test. Yeah, I was just I think is it is it the is it the Carl test? No, it's the H test. Um, but if you look at any of Carl's uh, RCTs, um, he has okay, he has long return to play times, uh, or longer than it, what what might be tolerated in in practice, as some might say. Um, but one of the gates for for Carl's work is that they pass the the H test. Uh, you know, without apprehension. I think it sort of went from um, the original paper that was published on that to be, you know, something that was perhaps a little bit more cumbersome to carry out in practice, whereas probably Carl, I think, from last time I spoke with him, uses it now. So, you know, we set them up, we do it. Are they still apprehensive? If if they are doing that that H test, then, um, you know, return to play is delayed a little more. Now, Carl has amazing pre-injury data off, off um, you know, probably in excess of 180-odd injuries across two RCTs. So you can't, you can't discount something like that as well. Um, it, it probably doesn't get used uh, heaps and heaps, but I think it, it, it's the data available on it is pretty compelling. Um, but again, it, there's, there's a probably a number of contextual factors to consider there as well. I think the, the most common ones, um, and this is just from, from what I know and what I see, not necessarily endorsements or recommendation, but it's probably what is practice at the moment. And, and I think we hope to do better work over the next couple of years on, on being able to give people better evidence and information on return to play factors and, and um, re-injury risk and the like. Yeah, most of it is is looking at uh, asymmetry and strength asymmetry uh, and and perhaps selecting, uh, you know, somewhat arbitrary cut points. Uh, and if they've got pre-injury data, then, you know, trying to match or exceed that in terms of magnitude of strength, but then also minimising imbalance. Um, you know, if you're looking for, like, exact numbers, Hand on heart, I can't say that there's a, a percentage imbalance in, say, Nordic strength, or I'd say, geez, your risk is now through the roof because for every individual that's different and for every individual that's going to be different 
pre-injury and what the impact is post-injury. So if you've got pre-injury data, having a look at their asymmetry to see whether it has been unduly affected, I think is important because there's some individuals who may have had a torrent, torrent injury history on one leg, not just hammy, but maybe ACL with a hammy graft too. Uh, but but, there, but maybe that isn't actually the causative factor. Um, so the imbalance side of it is one thing. Magnitude of strength probably isn't used all that much and as so I can't say whether that will actually give you an indication of whether your risk is going to be reduced. Um, so then I think people are typically looking for the resolution of pain and no apprehension during running. Um, and, and I know that there's a, a few practitioners who I really respect that say anytime they have apprehension during running, particularly if they're starting to tick up to 80, 85, 90, 95%, anytime they get apprehension during running, like that, they'll pull them from that session and, that, and that'll hold things up. Um, so pain-free and, and apprehension-free and hitting max velocity is probably important. Clearly, there's a pretty logical approach to say that um, building up workloads to the level um, that the, you think they're going to be exposed to uh, or exceeding what you think they're going to be exposed to so they can tolerate that return-to-play, return-to-performance spectrum um, makes makes sense. Um, you know, there's a little bit of data out there, not necessarily always for hammies, but but for lower limb injuries in general. Um, they're probably the main ones. So there, there's the strength side of it, there's the running side of it, and then there's some of the clinical stuff that might be, some people might look at the imaging stuff, but I don't think that actually, you should invest too much concern in that from the evidence that's out there. And there's you know, the pain on palpation and, and the pain during running and the like. So I think they're probably the key things that people do. Uh, whether I can, as I say, give you definitive information onto what's going to lower re-injury risk, I don't think I can. Other than if you can get more time, that's always going to be better. If you can pour more work into them, that's probably going to be better. Um, but that's not always going to be the case. Yeah, just going back to the Carl test, you know these days you're not allowed to pass tests off uh, in research under your own name. You know, it's not the done thing anymore. So um, I think based on... <laughs> based on... Uh, Based on those answers, that's great. And I think, you know, we've covered off a lot now uh, across injury risk minimization. We've covered off uh, a large amount of sort of re- rehab stuff. Um, I, I'm really interested in, you know, what's going on right now and what the future holds from your perspective with regard to uh, ongoing projects. Yeah, I mean, mate, good timing because I'm just in the middle of having to do sort of our uh, sort of end of year review, if you will, and, and plans for the next couple of years for, for some of the stuff at the research centre. Um, I've alluded to a few of them here. I think we need to do some pretty big long-term large studies um, that looks at, at re-injury risk, uh, return to play, think elements in, in, in that space. Um, and we're probably in the in the midst of preparing some funding applications with, uh, with Brian Heidershot out at University of Wisconsin and Sylvia Blemkaff from uh, University of Virginia at the moment. So I, I think that that's a key one because you think about how many, you break it down really, really simply. It's how do you stop people getting them or how do you minimise people's chances of getting them? How do you rehabilitate them well? How do you optimise rehab? Uh, and then how do you minimise their risk of then getting an injury again and, and getting them out of that sort of injury re-injury cycle? So I think that's a key one. Now, that, that might have to be big and large at multi-site, multi-year. Um, you know, we might have to get thousands of athletes or thousands of athlete seasons to be able to capture enough re-injuries 
uh, or catch enough injuries to then follow up with enough re-injuries. Uh, but I think that's an important area for us to sort of progress into. Um, I think we've probably got a few specific areas that we want to f- look at from a from a running perspective. And again, um, uh, working with Brian and Sylvia on a few things in in, in that space as well. But I think um, it sort of gets to the the idea that uh, we didn't break this down too much. I don't think we we really want to or got the time to. But um, you know, the role of running mechanics and injury risk. We actually think there's a, a level deeper that we can sort of drill into that um, and looking at, at some you know, tissue specific responses uh, or measures to, to, to various running mechanics or running approaches. Um, so probably trying to look at what are some markers that we can actually take out of running uh, that can be field-based but can actually give some really granular measures of, of what the tissue is exposed to. Um, I think that'll be that'll be interesting work. It's probably going to take us a little while, but I think that'll be quite cool. Um, and as I said, we've got a paper that's sort of hopefully due to sort of go out for a, a next round of review soon, just looking at you know, how useful certain measures are and the frequency of measurements. Um, and that's, again, going to focus on some of the architecture and the strength stuff as well, but to sort of not bury the lead, but, you know, you're measuring something once or three times a year actually doesn't change your, your ability to predict injury. So I think there's a few more things we want to probably drill into there. Um, and then one of the other ones, this is just a pet project of mine, um, but I think the, on the prediction side of things, I find the area fascinating. Uh, my gut tells me that we're never going to get really to a point where it's clinically useful for someone like yourself, Ben. Um, and so... And part of that is because who gets injured, how they get injured, the circumstances around it, around that. There's actually a fair bit of, of randomness to that. So what I'm sort of trying to sort of articulate and roll around in my mind and see whether I've got the data to do it or whether we need to go get more data is to, and this harks back to uh, Rob Barr's argument about, you know, if you've got um, interventions that we know prevent injury, well, they just give that intervention to the entire squad whether we can actually come up with a way to estimate for a squad of X number of athletes what the likely number of hamstring injuries that that squad is going to sustain. So you have general data across an entire league or you might have historical data from, from your team, but can you actually start to input some other data that says, well, based on where we are at this point in time, let's just say end of preseason, like, we are likely to get X number of hammy injuries, plus or minus bits and pieces here and there, with the view then that that actually might be an approach that drives people to say, well, how can we lower our overall squad risk effectively and almost giving out away the notion that I know that I can prevent injury or predict injury, should I say, in player X, Y or Z really well, but if we can look at strategies to give people information to say that, all right, our squad-wide risk, we can actually suppress that through strategy A, B, and C, or if we measure certain things, then, then there's a bit of a crapshoot there that, you know, if you, if you get only three injuries, but they're your three best players, well, you're still in the shit. Um, but if you can at least bring your overall number down from getting eight down to, say, three as an estimate, then the chances that it does happen to your three best players is, is going to be less. 
Um, so I think that'll be that'll be a bit of fun. I just want to work out um, how I can do it and it, and if it's useful. But I think that's something that there's a little bit of a pet project rolling around in my mind. I just need to find a little bit of time to invest into it. Yeah, I think that brings up that sort of web of determinants conversation around you know what what what's the weighting on these risk factors and how do they I, I remember us talking about this previously and we piggybacked our arsenal data on top of your um existing data with regard to fascicle length and symmetry and and force production and in our cohort which is always the sort of justification that was pretty good at identifying the, the players that were at risk but of course there were outliers so there's never a guarantee that that it's going to do it but how how accurate can you be is it is a really nice way of um of sort of packaging that that argument and that that interest so yeah i look forward to that mate when you get that done that'll be excellent listen mate i've really enjoyed the conversation uh you know as I have the last few, I think the best one we ever had was on a train back from Leeds, but that was with <laughs> a, a, a couple of Stellas, um, which yeah, made yeah. the conversation flow pretty well. I, I trust me, yeah. I'm not drinking Stella at seven in the morning here. Um, <laughs> You've disappointed me, yeah. mate. <laughs> Apologise. So yeah, just really, I mean, we'll, we'll include a lot of the stuff that you talked about in the show notes and the episode description today. Um, but you know, for the listeners, where's the best place for people to to find you i've pretty much weaned myself off twitter to be honest um so i don't know i will check it probably once a once a month maybe um so people can always message me through that otherwise i mean email um is a bread and butter for me so david.opar o-p-a-r at acu.edu.au always happy always happy to hear from people always happy to have conversations ben uh be they sort of pro some of the stuff we do or, or con some of the stuff we do, but always really keen to hear people's perspectives and and, and where what they see and what, and what they think is important. So, yeah, look, any, anyone out there, get in touch. Uh, it, it's sort of, as I say, I'm, I'm pretty lucky to work in what probably is a hobby uh, as a full-time job, um, but engaging with people who have to deal with these problems as well and see how we can do our side of the, the equation better you know, people who've got to deal with it at the coalface is um, it's one of the things I really enjoy about the job. So yeah, yeah, get in touch. That's fantastic, mate. Look, um, once again from me, I, I really enjoyed the chat today and really appreciate you giving up some of your time to to talk to us. I'm sure that the uh, listeners will get uh, as much out of this as I did too. So um, yeah, mate, thanks very much, and um, you know, have a good rest of your evening. And uh, look, we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Ben. Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode between Ben and David Opar. I for one enjoyed being a listener for that one and appreciated the blend of academic depth coupled with practical utility for the topics discussed between them. Over the next few weeks, we have a great lineup of guests that both myself and Ben will be interviewing and hosting, so you'll get some decent variety in who's doing the episodes. Head over to our social media channels and follow us for more updates. We are on Instagram at informperformance or on Twitter at InformPod. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Inform Performance Podcast. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.